our very first episode of the speaker series, I sit down with Safa Mazari, founder and CEO of Alexo, a powerful data analytics startup enabling e-commerce businesses to turn their data into actionable insights for their customers. Safa and I speak about various topics, such as his transition from working in the finance sector to starting his own business, what startups and tech businesses are looking for in today's students, and how students can best position themselves to land a position at tech companies today. For more information on Alexo, feel free to check out their website online. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more content on how you can best approach recruiting for technology companies. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Safa Mazari. So, yeah, one of the first questions I wanted to ask you, Safa, was how did you decide to make the switch from working in the finance sector to starting your own tech business? Yeah, Jazzy, thanks for having me. I think that's a great question. So I'll give a little bit of context. I studied finance at the University of San Diego. I was fortunate enough to work at two tech startups. And then I worked at a venture capital fund investing in software companies. So I kind of got to see both sides of the table. And like you said, I, I sat down one day and said, like, okay, I want to make the switch. I want to start my own company. <clears throat> What did that look like? So to me, it was how do I maximize my learning and how do I focus on a problem that I could spend the next 10 to 20 years of my life working on? So it wasn't, is the business plan perfect? Is the team perfect? Um, Am I the right age? It wasn't any of that. It was more like I fell in love with this problem and I kept thinking about it day after day, week after week. And I just said, okay, look, if I don't take the leap right now, I won't take it in the future. So for me, it was the right time and right place. Um, but I think for everyone, it's, it's slightly different. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. And I really liked how you pointed on that fact where, uh, or that, that like kind of nailed down that one point where it's like, you wanted to focus on one problem that you could solve for the next 10 to 20, 10 to 20 years of your life. Like you're definitely not going to like leave the finance sector to like go into a startup you don't see long-term value in. And like, I, I think um, a lot of students are kind of seeing the same thing. Like uh, for example, like me, uh, I was working at a private equity firm uh, this past summer who's doing exactly what uh, your firm was doing, which was investing in, in software startups. So you get to see a variety of different businesses and how they're tackling different problems. And it kind of gets your mind like running and like your, your gears kind of turning. It's like, wow, like, there's so many different problems out there that can be solved through tech. And like, I, I see this one problem I want to solve. It's not, how do I go into it? So I really liked how you pointed that out. Thank you. And uh, I, I guess uh, just to, uh, you know, move on, like, you know, like going in, like going into your tech business, what, 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 what were some of the traits you found were needed in order to succeed in the startup environment? I know it's different for everyone, but I think it, it'd be really good to get your, your view on it because starting a business from such, such a young age, you definitely encountered some problems that maybe some other people with more resources at the time wouldn't have. Yeah, absolutely. So I started my company when I was 23 and I had done well by the conventional marks. I did well in school. Um, I had a good job and the biggest thing for me was not optimizing for what's the perfect time, because I think you'll never have a perfect time. Like if you start when you're 18 years old, you have no money, but you're very scrappy and you have very little monthly expenses, right? If you start when you're 38 years old, you might have $100,000 saved in the bank, but you might have a family, a mortgage, you might have expectations, you might have all of these people that depend on you, you might be taking care of parents that are older than you, so on and so forth. So there's never a right time to start a company. Um, what I like to say is it's not 
perfectly rational to start a company. You know, if you leave a job that you could be making six figures and you could have weekends off to go work for yourself, it's not perfectly rational. There has to be something bigger than you that compels you to start a company. To answer your question more specifically about what are the traits that actually mattered? I think there were two traits looking back that fundamentally matter. The first is the ability to learn things quickly. And it's not being a know-it-all. It's not being a subject matter expert. It's saying, I know enough to figure it out. So when I wanted to make my first website, you go to a Google doc, you write up the website, you then think about how to you know, design the images. And then you figure out like, okay, great. I have this on my computer. How do I get it on the web? So you have to know enough to figure out DNS, figure out hosting, figure out a web server, figure out linking, figure out indexing to Google. And then let's say like, okay, text comes really naturally to you. How do you figure out the sales and marketing side? Same thing. When I started my company, it was cold emails, cold phone calls. It was going to networking events and I was terrible at it. I was terrible at pitching. I'm a really strong introvert. So that skill set didn't come naturally to me, but practice and practice and practice. And then you figure out what works and you figure out what doesn't work. So I'd say that willingness to learn and learn quickly um, is super key. Like you really got to apply Pareto's principle, the 80-20, and just say, what's the 20% of effort that gives me 80% of the results? You can't be a perfectionist in a startup or else you'll just never get off the ground. So that's column one. Column two is persistence. And I think most people on podcasts, most people in interviews, most people who talk about tech, they talk about all the glamorous things, raising millions of dollars, having a 50 person team, success, exits, going public, all of those things. I'll be honest with you, none of that matters. What matters is sitting in your room after six months and having no traction and no momentum and waking up that next day and moving forward no matter what. And it has to come internally. You know, um, I can't motivate someone else to go start a company and, and to continue. And you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. But the key is to kind of not look at any failure as final. I've been in pitch meetings where people say, that was awful. We're not going to invest in your company. I've sent cold emails where people say, we're absolutely not interested. Please don't email me again. Uh, I've tried to recruit people who didn't join the team. But that's what the life you sign up for, right? The key is that one hire that changes the trajectory of your company, that one investor who says yes, the one customer who starts paying you within that sea of no. So you have to be persistent in the face of 90 to 99% of your conversations are negative. People don't want to work with you. They don't want to partner with you. They don't want to give you money, but you have to wake up the next morning and, and do it all over again. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you touched on so many good points there. I had to note, note a couple of them down just because like the reason why I wanted to ask that question is because it kind of shows some of the traits that, you know, founders and CEOs of these tech companies, of these startups and what they're looking for in their hires as well, right? Like like the like the first point that you touched on, there, like there's never going to be a, a perfect timing, you know, start, always go into it. And one thing that I noticed like with some of my my peers and in school right now, you know, they're either... They're either recruiting for full-time or they're recruiting for another uh, internship if they're doing like a dual degree like um, like some of our other other friends then they're they kind of put off you know recruiting for different types of jobs but it, it goes exactly back to your point where like there's no perfect timing if you really feel like this is something that you're passionate about you need to go into it and then having the persistence to stick it out right like if i like if you're recruiting for a google position in uh, in the summer you know you're not just going to do a one uh, one recode problem or one hacker rank problem and then just ace the interviews right there's so much yep. so much more you have to go through so like that persistence and knowing like when it's going to be glamorous and when it isn't it's, it's so it's so key 
Yeah, and, and I'll actually jump in here with an anecdote. Um, I think that is exactly right. I'll be very honest with people. At 19 years old, I was an intern at a software company. At 23, I started my own software company. So if you want to make like a super impressive background, you could say of 19, I was an intern, 23, I was a CEO. I was a CEO of nothing, right? We had no money and no customers and no product, but I was a CEO. And the key is like, oh, how did I do that? Um, first of all, like any given day, you can decide to start a company. Starting a company is not difficult. Persisting in a company is difficult, right? So the kind of catch point, if, if you want that, that catchphrase is, being a founder is easy. Being a CEO is incredibly difficult because you have to keep the lights on for a year, two years, three years, five years, 20 years, right? And then even like, how did I get that internship? How did I get my first full-time job? How did I do all of that? People don't see kind of the iceberg beneath the surface. Um, for the internship, it was applying to 10 internships, getting rejected from nine, getting accepted for one. For the full-time job, it was 50 job applications turned into three offers. Well, that's 47 rejections along the way. And that's 47 meetings I prepped for. It's 47 face-to-face -face meetings. It's 47 phone calls. It's like, these are tough. It's not like I just sent a you know, resume and said, you should hire me. It's a personalized cover letter. It's meeting people face-to-face. -face. It's shaking their hand at a networking event. It's emailing them three, four times to, to make sure that my resume is at the top of the stack and doesn't get lost in the shuffle. And you still hear no at the end of the day. So I think the key is like looking backwards, every person can tell a very impressive story but you have to think about what the actual work is. And the tangible example I'll give for college students is think about how many colleges you applied to versus how many you got into, right? So all of you are going to graduate with great degrees from a great institution, but how many other schools did you apply to or did you look at, right? And that's going to continue in your career. So if you want that one promotion at your existing job, or if you want to break into a new field, get ready to apply 30, 40, 50 times and hear a lot of no's before you hear that one yes. No, absolutely. And like, it, it goes back to like, like, I, I feel like, like you're, you're drawing that balance between like the, the quality and quantity of it. And that's like one of the things that we even previously discussed was that, you know, like, and like a, a lot, a lot of my friends, right. It's like, oh, you know, 500 job applications. Like you have to go through like so many, like every day you better be applying to like 10 or 20, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it's like, while you're applying to those 10 or 20, are you putting in the quality that's needed to at least have like like a chance of a decent ROI from that coming out? Like, as you said, like, are you emailing the people? Are you following up? Are you emailing them multiple times before they respond? Like, are you doing all those essential things or are you just applying to 10 or 20 jobs pointlessly and kind of crossing your fingers and hoping to, hoping to hear back? You know what I mean? So like, I, I kind of like how you draw that, that parallel between like the quality and quantity uh, portion of it. Absolutely. Do you want me to go deeper on how I would think about applying for a job today? Exactly. Yeah, that, uh, that's a great lead. One of the next questions I had for you was like, how do you propose students approach recruiting for tech companies today? And do you see a divide between, you know, rather recruiting for like a startup environment, rather recruiting to uh, versus recruiting for like fan companies, you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So yes, I think the world is different if you're applying to a large publicly traded company versus applying to a startup. So let's take the public company example first. If you're applying to an open job at Apple, Google, Microsoft, what I would do is read the job description. And that sounds like a hilarious first step, but I mean, actually read it. Look at the verbs that they use. Look at the programming languages. Look at the tool set. Look at um, the culture. What team are you going to be a part of? You know, just at a super high level, like being on a front end dev team versus being like a you know QA person is is very different. So you have to you can't just send that same resume, same cover letter, even if there are two positions within Google that are both open today. So it's like, what are they looking for? And then ask yourself, so what? So it's like, 
they're hiring because they have this problem. You're the solution to that problem. They're going to be asking themselves, so what, every time that they look at your resume. Okay, you went to the school, so what? You have this major, so what? You took these classes, so what? You have these projects, so what does that mean? You have to bridge that gap for them. And the advice that I give is you should have a standard resume and you should have like a cover letter template with maybe 50, 60% of the work done, but then you should be customizing the other 50%. And my rule is never write a cover letter that starts with to whom it may concern. Never. You want to find a person. So you want to reach out to someone on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You want to find out who the hiring manager is. You want to ask someone at your school or maybe an alum who's at Google and say, how do I get that slightly warm introduction? It doesn't have to be like the SVP of engineering hands your resume to the hiring manager, right? It could just be someone who's two years ahead of you, graduated from college two years ago, has worked at Google for 18 months. And you just send your resume to them like, hey, you got the job. Do you mind just a little bit of coaching, a little bit of advice? Here's what I have. I'm going to apply. Here's my specific question. Should I go left or should I go right? So I think taking that little bit of extra time is really crucial. The other thing is you have to understand the flip side of the equation. So if you're an engineering manager or hiring manager at a big company, you have a job opening, you're probably getting a couple hundred, if not a thousand applicants for every open position. So how do you just stand out in that sea? And I think the key is like, you want to apply through the standard channels, but then you also want to find these indirect channels. Like, can you, like I said, just reach out to people. Um, can you contact that person directly? Like, do you know someone at that office? Can you figure it out? Can you be a little creative? Can you write them a message? Can you strike up a legitimate conversation that isn't centered around you? The good way of doing that is look at your emails and look at how much you write the, the letter I versus how much you write you. And if every sentence starts with I, I'm Safa Mazari, I'm a finance graduate, I want a full-time job, I want to work at Google, the other person's not going to care because they don't know you. But if you position it like, so I saw you have this job opening, you mentioned this skill set, how do you recommend that a student who has this degree kind of positions themselves and learns about this? What are the good resources? What are the books? Are there podcasts? Are there things that I should be doing in anticipation for this? Go above and beyond. And you got to strike a balance. Like you said, you can't apply to one job graduating from school and spend 50 hours. And you also can't just send your resume blindly to a thousand people. So I would say, you know, think of like, can you apply to three to four places a day, but make it custom tailored, spend your time. Um, when I think about recruiting someone today, I will follow them on LinkedIn for months before I reach out to them be like, are, are they posting content? What are they posting? What are their interests? What are their hobbies? What are they like? Can I get the background? Can I understand if they're a culture fit before I even reach out to them? You know, so like, I think that level of depth is this kind of okay. So that's kind of the, the big company lens. The startup lens is, I think, very different. Um, startups can post a job description. Sure, you can apply to it. Um, I think you want to reach out to the founders directly of early stage companies. Like if the startup has less than 100 employees, you should just email the founder. Because you have to think the founder, either like the founder CEO or the, the co-founder CTO, however the company structure, like they're hiring because that either have money that they need to allocate to, to kind of make productive. They have to hire someone to, to make a better product, for example, or they have a pain, a really strong pain today. And they're like, look, product's always late. We got to hire another engineer. We really got to get this figured out. Mm -hmm. So reach out to them directly. They're the ones that are ultimately responsible and position yourself as the ideal candidate. And in this case, I would say spend a lot more time, read their website, read their about us page. Everyone knows what Google does. Not everyone knows what my company does or what another startup in San Diego does. So read their website, read their about page, go deep, contact the founder directly and 
you really got to sell them on why you are aligned with their vision. And fundamentally, if you're not aligned with their vision, I don't think you should be applying, but like, what's their mission statement? What's their vision? How do they think about the world? Why are you the ideal person to work for them? And it might seem difficult why you're the ideal person because you don't have years and years of experience, but the key is don't push back on the experience side, lean into learning, creativity, flexibility, upward mobility, all of these things, and just show them that you're very ambitious. First of all, by taking the effort to emailing them, you're already more ambitious than, ever, than most other people, but show them that you're more ambitious. That is what will get you in the door and will get you interviews that will get you feedback on how to refine your story and ultimately land that job. So I think at a big company, you want to talk to people a couple of years ahead of you, managers, directors, people like that, who are very open in my experience to coaching and, and mentorship. In a startup, you want to go straight to the founder and be like, I know you have this problem. I know you have this job opening. I understand your tech stack. I understand your space. Here's the value I can add. Will you like take this chance on me? Because this is how motivated I am. This is how hungry I am. Prove it to them. Don't just talk about it, but go above and beyond and actually prove that out in your first message to them. And I guarantee you'll have a very high hit rate. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I believe like there's like there's a strong link between like what you just said at that like final stage of like of contacting to like those like as you said like maybe scaling down the number of applications you do every day to like those like three or five like really quality ones and then like making qualities exactly what you just said right you know showing your worth showing what you can do like uh, you know like Fintor an investor uh, uh, that you're an investor and. In. You know, when I when I was going on like Angel List and and trying to uh, trying to recruit for them, like what, one of the things that I, I really appreciated was that like Masood and uh, Farshad, like the the co-founders of the company, you know, they 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 were really asking me more objective things and like not really theoretical things uh, that I could do. You know, like they, they didn't care whether I could invert a binary tree. That you know, uh, Masood, Masood uh, cared. You know, can, can you build what we need you to build uh, while you're doing our internship? And I think that relates directly to what you said, which was, you know, showing showing the really objective value add things that you can do for them like today, rather than, you know, kind of like the overarching uh, cliche things like I'm a hard worker, I'm, 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 I'm yeah. persistent, stuff like that. So I, I think it, it relates the, like really well to what you said and is used in practice today, like with the co-founders that people are, are, are applying to. Yeah, exactly. The key is like, Ultimately, it falls back on people want to work with other people that they like. So like, are you, do you get along with them? Do you understand them? Do you want to work with them? It's, it's a two-sided street. You should be interviewing every company as well. You shouldn't just take every offer and say, oh, I'm happy to have it. The other thing is like exactly what you touched on. There's a pain point today. Can you help them today? Can you hit the ground running? Like, hey, we're building this in React. You're like, hey, cool. Here's two projects I built in React, like they're very simple, but like I got them to completion. I published them. Like you can look through them, right? That's a lot more impressive than saying like, I'm an experienced software developer. Like, what does that mean? Right? Like there's hundreds of, of tasks and opportunities within software development. Like there's no way you're good at all of them. Right? So just being like, look, I know how to do this. Um, frankly, showing instead of telling, and it doesn't have to be crazy. I mean, when I was a student, it was I was on a club on campus and we did a project that took a semester and here's that report for you. It's like a 20 page PDF. I was a part of this team. Um, I took this class and I read this interesting book and like, here's how that relates to what we're talking about today. Like reading what they publish. It's incredible. Like I write a lot. So if someone just looks at my last five LinkedIn posts and looks at our blog and is like, Hey, I really liked your article about why there are so many unicorn companies today. Um, 
do you mind if we talk for 15 minutes about it? That's going to get on my calendar. Like people don't understand. I was having breakfast or lunch meetings with CEOs, CFOs, hedge fund managers, venture capitalists when I was a student, simply by asking. You know, they wrote an interesting article. I read it. I reached out. I had a very specific question. They took my phone call or they met with me face to face. These people will respond to you. So you kind of have to get into the mentality of like, I can have an educated, balanced conversation with these people. Uh, and you kind of get got to get out of the mindset of like, oh, they're so impressive. Um, most of the people you're talking to are like maybe five years older than you. And they remember being a student. They remember internships. They remember part-time jobs, their first full-time job. So it's not like we have it all figured out either. It's more like we're putting this message out there, you know, whether it's Fintor, whether it's Alexa or so on, like we're putting this message out there. This is what we're doing. We're trying to call people in who kind of agree with that worldview and then kind of diligence through them very quickly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Is, is that helpful or am I just rambling at this point? No, no, that's perfect. In fact, it, it made, me, made me think back to like when, when I was starting my uh, HBA1 just last year, uh, I, I wanted to try and uh, recruit for consulting. And uh, it was a uh, uh, it was a firm uh, based in Ottawa. I forget the name, but uh, one of the uh, one of the associates there that uh, uh, I met at one of the networking events. You know, he was talking about an article that he wrote on uh, space defense and how you know, like the like um, like countries could be waging wars uh, soon, like in, in the future in space. Like it's a possibility. And it was a really really interesting article that I read it. Uh, I read about it. And I I really wanted to pick his brain about it. So I sent him an email. Before, uh, before like trying to like network with many different people, and he responded right, right away, and he did exactly what you said, which is he booked a time in his calendar for me, and I got to speak to him about it, and do, like just just uh, you know pinpointing on something that he was interested in, and like a piece of work that he did that I took the time to kind of read, analyze, and like make some points about. You know, it was it was valuable uh, for him, and it, like it shows like it shows that you're interested in like what what the firm is doing and what the people at the firm do, and how you're a culture fit. Another thing that you touched on, like. Like, uh, like it's, it's good to hear that like people like in the industry such as yourself are like, like actually do care about these things and that like it, it's something that does work for people who are recruiting. Yeah, exactly. And like, you have to think of the, like the day job or you have to think of the day in the life of the person receiving your email, phone call, resume, whatever. Like, okay, if I wake up, I have 35 tasks to do today. I have this job opening. Like I really got to squeeze it in between like a podcast reporting and a call with my team and a call with, you know, a partner and all of that. It's like, how is this cold email landing, right? How does this fit into my day? What problem is it solving? And if you kind of take that approach and say like, hey, I'm a fourth year student. I'm about to graduate. Here's my resume. Oh, by the way, like I noticed you wrote this or I noticed this on your website. Like, you know, here's how I can fix this problem, or here's my suggestion, um, all of the things, like, it really makes a difference. Like, it's incredible. If I can tell instantaneously, if someone's looked at our website and looked at my LinkedIn for more than five seconds or not, I'll give you a very clear example. I had one person reach out to me and said, hey, Safa, I found this bug on your website. Like, by the way, this is what I do. Um, do you want to have a further conversation? I was like, oh, wow, they actually found a mistake that I didn't notice. That's pretty impressive. And then we started that conversation. Other message I got was, dear Mr. Mazzari. And then they started writing. And I just deleted that email instantaneously. Because I'm like, if you've ever met me or ever met anyone who's ever met me, you know, people just call me Safa. You know, I'm just, you know, person in my 20s trying to build a company, right? Uh, I can instantaneously tell, like, this person has no familiarity 
um, with kind of what we're doing or me. So it's just like, this is just a generic message that they send to 50 people a day, right? So I think kind of breaking through that's really important. Um, the other thing is like, what, what are you getting out of this? And I think like not enough students ask themselves, like, what are you getting out of this internship or this job besides experience and money? Because experience and money are kind of the normal things. That's why you work, right? What is the specific tangible reason why you want to work here? Really spend a lot of time thinking about that and going deep on it. I think that's key. The second thing is ask great questions. The best interviews I've ever had have been two-sided. I ask people, tell me about your firm. Why do you work there? What surprises you about the work? What excites you about the future? Like pitch me on your company too. Um, it shouldn't just be you just getting grilled for 30, 40, 50 minutes about your background and why you're impressive. It should be a two-way conversation of like, why do you work here? You know, why should I work here? Who are you looking for? What's the culture? You know, what's the vision for the future? And that relaxes people and it becomes a two-way dialogue. And it's not this very artificial interview process. It's more just two people talking and seeing if there's common ground. No, absolutely. And I, like that, that was a fantastic point to touch on where it's like, like, I, and I think this is something that like, you know, my friends and like, like just students in general who are recruiting for any internship need to realize that like you, you have value and worth just being in the conversation as well. Don't, don't let, let, let whoever you're networking with or whoever you're interviewing for just have kind of like that hierarchy over you, you know, like you, like you have you have valuable questions to ask and you, your time is valuable. And it doesn't mean like go in there arrogantly or, you know, go in there with like an ego, but, you know, just like kind of like stick up for yourself in the conversation and show them that like you, you also have like other interests or you, you also have like, you, you also have like value for your own time and that like you can like hold yourself in a conversation rather than just going from like just the, just asking multiple bullet questions and just letting the conversation go one way as it goes back to exactly where you said where it's like the two-sided conversations are the most valuable and I feel like the person on the receiving end really respects that anyways. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about how you started this podcast. You said, hey, I know you worked at a fund before and then you made a switch to start your own company. Why did you do that? That's so much more engaging than um, what's your first name? What's your last name? Where did you go to school? Why? You know, like those are like, you can just look and I do this all the time. Like who's the person I'm emailing? Okay. They agree to a 30 minute time slot with me, put their name into Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever, and be like, Oh, they have an MBA. Why did they go get an MBA? Oh, they worked at Microsoft and went to Google. Okay. So ask them, why did you make that switch? What's the difference in culture between these two firms? How would you think about like, you know, working at one company versus another company? What was it like working in Seattle versus, you know, Silicon Valley versus Canada? Like ask these questions. There's people behind all of these. And I think that's, what's so hard to understand from the outside is I've now seen it as an intern, a full-time employee working at a fund, helping a fund raise money, uh, working at a, like building a startup, trying to raise money now. So I've seen like all of this, right? They're just people at the end of the day. You know, if you look at the news the other day, Greylock raised, Greylock raised $500 million for a fund. Okay, how do you raise $500 million for a fund? Phone calls, emails, Zoom, face-to-face -face meetings, relationships. There's no difference in raising a $500 million venture fund and getting your first internship. And I think if you just practice this skill set over and over, you'll become natural at networking. And then you'll realize all the best connections come from your network that you're investing in every day, every week, as opposed to saying, I'm in hiring mode. So I'm going to send out 500 applications. And then once you have a job, you go silent and you don't have a network outside of that. Uh, I always tell our team, and I will always tell this, I want to work with people who could work anywhere in the world 
I want you to get multiple job offers while you work for me. And I want to convince you why you should stay. It should not be this arrangement that you can't do anything else but work here uh, and you're stuck here. It should be you are the top 5% at what you're doing. And I'm going to convince you on why us, everything, salary, equity, vision, roadmap, you know, personal growth, professional growth, flexibility, all of it is good enough for you to stay. And I think that's kind of the mentality is like, I'm building my personal network. And oh, by the way, that will get me a job or an internship, as opposed to, I have to jump through all of these hoops because I'm at that age where I need to be applying or my peers or my parents are going to be kind of putting pressure on me. So I think you got to flip that equation and you should just always be networking and, and trying to keep in touch with the smartest people that you run into because they will have very impressive careers. And just by knowing them, you will learn a lot and you'll be uh, introduced to situations that you would otherwise not have access to. No, absolutely. Like your, your, your network is kind of like your, your bread and butter, you know, like if, if anything ever goes wrong, like, like God forbid, to like your job or your position or your life, like your, your network is what you can kind of like, uh, kind of have like your backbone and like fall back on. And so I completely agree. It's like, oh, like always be networking, even if you land like Google, Amazon, the, the highest paid job, it doesn't matter. Your network is still probably the most valuable thing to you. And it goes back on what you said is like, rather you're whether you're raising 500 million or a hundred thousand dollars, like it's the same principles and it's, it scales, uh, proportionally, you know, like your network is what's going to really bring value to you, your company, and pretty much any aspect of your business. Yeah, exactly. And like, even if you do land that like amazing job at Google, let's say there's no way you land the dream job in the dream department with the perfect salary. The first time out of the gate, you get into Google and then you say like, all right, this jazz guy is really smart. How do I get closer to him? Can I have lunch with him once a week? Oh, okay. What's his boss do? Oh, interesting. They do that. I want to learn more about machine learning. How do I in two years position myself to work at that team instead of this team? Right? Like it's pretty obvious. You see this in every single college course that you take one week into the course. You're like, all right, these two or three people, these two or three men or women, they're next level. They're going places, right? Talk to them, network with them, keep in touch with them. Um, and that principle has held true no matter what I look at high school, university, you know, law school, MBA, startups, it doesn't matter. There's always a group of people that differentiate themselves and go further and further. And once you're in the company, then you got to keep kind of building that network and, and that's your way up. Um, and it's not always just job titles and money. Maybe you love the salary that you have, but you want more flexibility to work remotely. Well, you got to earn that in, you know, good performance reviews and kind of good uh, assessment from your peers. And then you can ask for that, right? So the key is like, what do you want? How do you always be optimizing for it? And like, I don't know a better way of doing that than continually learning and continually growing your network. Again, it doesn't have to be huge investments, but you should be spending 30 minutes a day growing your network. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And like, th thank you so much for touching on those points. And kind of like the, one of the wrap up questions I have for you, the, the final ones, you've already touched on so many good points relating to this question. But if you have anything else, it'd, it'd be great to hear. Like during the interview stage, students choose a variety of different methods in order to prepare for each type of interview, right? Rather, it's a technical interview or behavioral. Generally speaking, though, like what do you think students should focus on in order to obtain the most successful outcome from their interview? Yeah, it's a really good question. So the way I think about it, and I can primarily speak from my background, which is like more like finance and accounting questions they would ask me, things like that. Um, do a lot of technical practice generally. So like if I'm applying for a position and I know I'm going to be valuing startups, 
then I'm going to read every article I can about valuations, about startups, about where the market's at, about revenue multiples, about you know, all of these things. And like really in the back of my brain have a very comprehensive framework about how in the last six months companies are being valued, why, and what's my opinion on it. So the general practice is the very technical thing, right? But then when I'm prepping for talking to Sarah versus talking to John, I switch and I do my, I do my research and my practice on the culture, the personality, uh, all of those things. So that when I get on the phone call with them, that's top of mind you know, I know how to present information because a lot of it is people are very, very talented, but how do you distill that down into like two sentences when you talk to someone or five sentences in an email, right? That's really the, the skill that's challenging. And so I think culture right before the interview or right before sending that email, like really helps with like your tone, your presentation, how you're approaching all of it. And you want it to resonate with them and land the right way. So if their culture is very cutthroat, very competitive, work all the time, you know, it's a huge market. We're going to build this great thing. That's very different than like, hey, we're, you know, very technical team, but we're as part of a nonprofit. And the biggest thing that matters is like our mission, our vision, our global impact. You would not approach those interviews the same way. And you would not be equally happy working at those two companies. You would know which side of the, the coin you land on, right? So I think general practice needs to be very technical, very rigorous. You need to know your answers. And then like right before each interview or every outreach, I would do some culture practice and I would really dig deep on the firm. And that's how you come off as like an actual person, as opposed to just like a resume or a job application um, who understands the technical thing. I think the technical things are kind of like what you need. But then like, how do you actually get the job? I think it comes down to personality and culture and all those intangible things. No, absolutely. I completely agree. And like, I, I like how you like supplemented the cultural with like the, like taking the initiative to, you know, do that industry research. Like, as you said, like you were, you were researching like what in the past six months have companies been doing? Like how, how is that, how has the industry been changing? Like, where's the market moving? And I, and I think that's like, so, so crucial. Like a lot of my friends who've been recruiting for like Amazon and Google, like sometimes they get the questions of like, like, wh where do you see this specific technology moving? Where do you see this specific, mm -hmm. specific artificial intelligence moving? And if you don't really have that background knowledge or you really haven't done your research on like what technologies the company is using and how the industry or the market is responding or using those technologies then like you're kind of at a loss and then like not only just being able to answer those questions but then kind of showing like how you directly fit in with like the cultural aspects and the intangibles that you were uh, focusing on like how, how do you really fit that into the conversation and how do you really like show that like you you'd be an effective person like on this team Exactly. The very tangible example I'll give of that is like, if you apply to Tesla today and get an interview, you better understand what they did at AI day and you better have a perspective on the Tesla bot. Doesn't mean you have to listen to the whole four hour presentation or write a thesis on it, but you should know the talking points. You should have an opinion on it because they're going to ask you, because if you work at Tesla, that's what the whole team is rallying around, right? You can't be like, oh, I have no idea and I don't care. And I didn't do 15 minutes of research. You should hire me you got to put that extra step in because you know that's top of mind for everyone working at Tesla today, right? If you do that, you will absolutely stand out. Yeah, no, absolutely. Com completely agree. And Safa, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Really appreciate it. I'm, I'm almost positive that everything you said here is really going to help our viewers and like help the students that listen to it. So thank you so much for taking the time and we really appreciate you. appreciate having you on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. All right, take care.